At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Have you ever found yourself driving down the expressway and your mind just kind of wanders and you're not paying attention until you glance to the side and you see a state trooper parked on the median? And then what do you do? The first thing you do, at least what I do, I look at the speedometer. Oh yeah, you know what I'm talking about. And I look and I see I'm going 20 miles over the speed limit. (gasps) And now all of a sudden your heart's pounding, your blood pressure's elevating, you're coming up with a million excuses, you're looking in the rearview mirror and you're like, God, don't let them see me. Lord, make me invisible. Make them pay attention to anything but my speed. And you're like, that's the 10 to 15 worst seconds of your life. And then you look up in the rearview mirror and you're like, oh, no cop car, no lights. Thank you, God. Like you were right in the throne room of grace and you were praying and interceding and God answered, thank you, Jesus. And so in order to not do that again, you put the cruise control on. Then you keep driving the speed limit. And aren't you just glad that you got mercy? Because nothing feels as good as mercy. Amen? Yeah, amen. And then 10, 20 minutes later, some bozo speeds by 20, maybe 30 miles over the speed limit. And you're wondering what? Where's a cop when you need one? Right? (laughs) That jerk deserves a ticket. Five minutes later, as you drive by, there he is on the side of the road with the cop pulling him over. And you're like, yes, that guy got what he deserved. (laughs) Uh, I can tell some of you have been there too. (laughs) Isn't it funny how we live in this tension between forgiveness and justice? That we want forgiveness when we mess up, but we're quick to want justice when somebody else hurts us, or when our rights have been violated, right? We live in this tension very unfairly each and every day, and we don't manage that tension very well. The only person who has ever balanced forgiveness and justice perfectly is our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? We have been in a series called The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, and we have been going through the statements of faith found in the Apostles' Creed. The creed are just statements of of the faith, statements of fact pulled from the very scriptures of God that document very clearly, very concisely, very memorably the tenets of the Christian faith. And today, we come to the second to last statement of truth in the creed, which says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And so today, in order to unpack that truth, we're going to be in John chapter 8. If you have your devices or your Bibles or whatever device or method you have, turn with me to John chapter 8. Because we're going to look at a passage of scripture, a story that talks about this 
truth. And the truth we're going to learn from this story is that Jesus forgives sins. Jesus forgives sins. Sin is defined in scripture as missing the mark. That God has set a standard of holiness and no one has been able to achieve that standard. We have all missed the mark. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That means you. That means me. That we've all sinned. But the good news is that there is forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what we've been singing all morning. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied because he washed me of all of my sins. Jesus forgives sins. But before we dive into this passage, I need to address something that's written in your Bibles. If you'll notice, that this story is marked off by brackets. And there's either a heading or a footnote in your Bible that reads something like this. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So let me take a minute or two to just explain that. The Bible was written 1,400 years before the invention of the printing press. That means that the only way that the ancients could make copies of the original manuscripts that were written was to copy them by hand. And so what we have as our Bible are copies of copies of copies of copies because we don't have the original manuscripts that were written by the original authors. What we have are copies. Archaeologists have uncovered over 25,000 copies of the New Testament, either in part or in whole. And so there are early manuscripts, that means older. There are newer manuscripts, The problem with this passage is that the earliest manuscripts don't contain this story. But the majority of the later ones do. So how do we rectify that? We have some early church fathers who mention this story as having taken place. Many scholars agree that this story happened. But it was not written by the Apostle John. Even though we find it here in the Gospel of John. And all scholars are agreed that this story is consistent and the essence of this story is consistent with the life of Jesus. That we find in this story the same principles found in other stories about Jesus. And so while this story may not be authentic to John, this story is certainly authentic Jesus. And so with that introduction, brief as it was, let's dive into a front row seat to see how Jesus forgives sins. I want to share with you three ways in which uh, we learn how forgiveness works. The first is that forgiveness requires the awareness of guilt. Forgiveness requires the awareness of guilt. I'm in John chapter 8, starting in verse number 2. Early in the morning, he, that is Jesus, came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, most scholars believe that this story takes place just a few months before the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And so whenever Jesus was in Jerusalem, his custom was that he would come into Jerusalem, he would go to the temple, people would gather, and he would sit down, and he would begin to teach the people. So this story starts just like any of the other stories of Jesus, where Jesus is teaching the people. In the middle of teaching, there's a commotion. There's some scribes and some Pharisees who are muscling their way through the crowd, interrupting the teaching. They're dragging a woman behind them, and they throw her in front of Jesus, and they interrupt the teaching, and they say, Jesus, this woman's been caught in adultery. What do you say? Now, if you've been in church long enough, you know who scribes and Pharisees are, but maybe you don't know who they are, so let me just introduce them to you. Scribes are those who are responsible for studying copying and interpreting the law of Moses. That's their job. The Pharisees are a religious and, and, and political sect of Judaism who believed in a strict adherence to the law of Moses. They were sort of like spiritual police. They made sure they and everybody else around them did what the law said. And so these scribes and these Pharisees used to have a lot of influence, a lot of power, a lot of sway over the people until Jesus showed up. And Jesus turned their world upside down, turned their power structures upside down, and they hated him for it. And so they wanted to do everything they could to discredit Jesus. And so they cook up a trap. Verse number six tells us that they cooked up this trap to discredit Jesus, to get him to do something, to say something that get him to lose favor with the people. And so what's the trap? So they bring this woman who they say has been caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus, the law of Moses says, well, what does the law of Moses say? Well, it's interesting. Leviticus chapter 20, you, you don't have to turn there says there's a penalty for adultery. In fact, Deuteronomy 22 and 22 says it this way. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Seems pretty straightforward, right? What's the, what's the punishment for adultery? Death. You're done. What's the trap? This is obviously a trap. Well, if Jesus said, you're right, she's guilty, she's condemned to die, because that's what the law of Moses says, go ahead, stone her, the problem is he'll lose his reputation as a friend of sinners. He'll lose his message of grace and mercy. He will be discredited in front of the very people he came to save. So that's not a good option. What's option two? Option two is he could say, by the way, if he stones her, the other problem is he's in trouble with the Roman authorities. The Romans won't let anybody else execute people except them, so he will be at odds with the Roman Empire. So that's not a good option. Option two is just as bad. He could say, you know what? You're right. The law says stone her, but I feel generous today. I forgive her. She can go. It's all right. If he does that, He'll lose credit with the people again because the people hold the law of Moses as the law that defines their life. And the other problem is Jesus would contradict himself because he said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So Jesus is in a catch-22. 
He's caught on the horns of a dilemma. Either one choice that he makes is a problem for him. So what does he do? (laughs) You know what he does? He stoops down and he begins to write on the ground. I am not sure that was what they were expecting. Like in all of the scenarios that played out in their minds, him stooping down and writing on the ground was not what they had in mind. So what did Jesus write on the ground? Well, maybe he wrote their names down. All of those scribes and Pharisees, he knew them all by name anyway, so he wrote their names down, and next to it, he wrote their sins. Maybe that's what he did. Maybe he wrote a Bible verse. But, you know, in the Old Testament, there are two times where God wrote something. One is in Daniel chapter 5. When the king of Babylon was throwing a party, and it was a lavish party, the hand of God showed up, and with his finger, God wrote on the wall, and Daniel had to come in and interpret what was written, and he interpreted by saying, you have been weighed in the balance and have been found wanting or lacking. Maybe that's what he wrote on the ground, because that would be true in this case. But perhaps better than that would be what happened in the book of Exodus. Twice in the book of Exodus we read that God wrote with his finger on tablets of stone something we call what? The Ten Commandments. Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments because one of those commandments is thou shalt not commit adultery. Maybe that's what it is. I have searched high and low. I have read everything there is to it. You know what the answer is? I don't know. Nobody does. Anybody who tells you that they know is lying to you. We don't know. But whatever it is, Jesus was writing in the dirt. But by writing in the dirt, you can see the heart of Jesus. Because by writing in the dirt, you know what he did? He took the attention of the crowd away from this woman and placed it on himself. Isn't that like a loving Jesus? He took it off of this woman who's been caught in whatever state she's in and he puts it on himself so that the attention is on him. And he's going to use this stage to show the extravagance of his forgiveness. But you see, before forgiveness can happen, there needs to be conviction. There needs to be guilt. We can't be forgiven of something we don't know we've done. And so the first step of forgiveness is acknowledging that we have sinned, that we have committed a wrong, that we have violated God's law. That's the first step in coming to receive forgiveness. If we can't get to that point, we can't receive forgiveness. I find it interesting that this woman doesn't defend herself. She doesn't say, no, you got the wrong woman. I didn't do it. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't make excuses. She knows she's caught. She's been caught red-handed. And all she does is she cowers in the ground, waiting for whatever happens. I think somewhere along the way, conviction has started to appear in her heart. You know, one of the deepest fears that you and I have is having our sins exposed. You and I leave our house and we put on our face and we put on this facade that says that everything is fine, that everything is okay. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, better than I deserve. When deep inside you're like, yes, that's as far as I want you to go, don't come any closer. The truth is, 
many of us are living in sin. Many of us have stuff stuck deep in the closets of our heart. We don't want anybody to see. Know what I'm talking about? That's okay, you don't have to nod. Just look straight ahead. The truth is you're not alone. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible says in 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You are not alone in your sin. We have all sinned. None of us can judge each other because we all stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. Amen? And so the first step in receiving forgiveness is acknowledging we have sinned. That we are guilty before a holy and righteous God. The second thing we learn about forgiveness is that forgiveness removes all condemnation. Verse 7 says, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, A woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. So he's doodling on the ground. I don't know what he's doodling. Maybe he's doodling because he's bored. Maybe like some of you are. And they pester him. And they push him. And they press him. Say something. Do something. She's guilty. What do you say? And finally he stands up and he says, You who have no sin, cast the first stone. That's not what they expected. That's another scenario they never thought about. Because Jesus took the law to an extent they never considered. It's as if Jesus says, you know, you're right. She's guilty. You caught her. Good job. But since you are all so concerned about keeping the law perfectly, let's do just that. The Bible says... The law says that if you're going to throw a stone, you got to be an eyewitness. The first stone has to be from the hand of an eyewitness. And that eyewitness has to be innocent of this sin. So if you're an eyewitness and you're innocent of this issue, go ahead, throw the stone. <laughs> Uh-oh. You're in trouble, Robinson. Danger, danger. This is not what they thought was going to happen. These self-righteous accusers now stand exposed. Why? Well, first of all, how do you catch someone in the act of adultery? You can go house to house peering in window after window until you find someone, like a peeping Tom, how disgusting. <clears throat> or, <clears throat> you know, time and place and person, which means that this is a setup. There's a second problem with this story that causes them to be exposed. And that is there's something missing in this story. Church, what's missing in this story? Where's the guy? Where's the dude? Last time I checked, it takes two to tango, yeah? I'm not a biologist and I'm not a scientist, but I know you can't do adultery with just one person. Where's the guy? Maybe he jumped out the window, ran for his life. That's possible. I'm willing to bet... He's in the crowd. He's got a rock in his hand. And he's pointing that accusatory, accusatory finger at her. 
waiting to throw this rock at her. And Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Uh Uh-oh, we're in big trouble. And verse number nine says, one by one, they drop their stones and they leave. Now, can, you, can I just ask you to imagine something for, for a moment? Imagine you and I, that we're that woman. There we are standing. We've been dragged out of bed. We've been dragged through the streets of Jerusalem. We've been thrown in front of Jesus. All of these men are standing there pointing at us, accusing us, rocks in hand ready to throw it at us. And Jesus, we just hear him say these words, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. What's your response? I know what my response is. I'd I'd duck. I'd clench my eyes shut. And I'd brace for impact. Because I'm guilty. I know I'm guilty. Jesus knows I'm guilty. Everyone knows I'm guilty. I've been caught. And I deserve to die. And I'm going to brace waiting for impact. And as we stand there before Jesus, waiting for that rock to fly, all I can think of is how much will this hurt? How long before I black out and die? And all the while, she's standing there, eyes clenched, braced, waiting. And all she hears is thud and shuffling of feet. Thud, shuffling of feet. And more thuds as stones hit the ground and shuffling of feet. And then she hears the words of Jesus. Woman, where are they who condemned you? Can you imagine her confusion? Can you imagine what's going through her head? She's like, uh, I'm ready to die. What do, you mean? what do you mean, where are they? She looks up and she looks around and she sees there's a pile of stones strewn on the floor, but there's nobody holding them. What happened? All she can do is look back at Jesus and say, no one, Lord. Don't miss what she called him. Did you see what she called him? She did not call him rabbi. She did not call him teacher. That's what she had heard the scribes and the Pharisees call Jesus. They called him teacher. We don't know if she knew Jesus. We don't know if she ever interacted with Jesus. Most likely not. But here she is standing before this man. And his very questions, his very presence, his very demeanor says that that he is very different than everybody else. That he's not your normal, regular teacher or rabbi. This man is different. And so she says to him, no one, Lord. That phrase indicates that repentance has started to happen in her heart. She knows she's guilty. She's been caught red-handed. Jesus knows she's guilty. The crowd knows she's guilty. But there's no one holding rocks anymore. And so repentance has happened. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But wait, but wait a minute. How can Jesus say that? Isn't she guilty, church? Didn't they catch her red-handed? So how can Jesus not condemn her? You see, in just a few months from this story, Jesus knows that these very same religious people are going to betray him and arrest him. That they're going to beat him. They're going to crucify him on a cross and that he's going to die. Not because he did anything wrong, 
But he's going to bear the condemnation, the guilt, the shame, and the sin that that woman had coming to her. And he's going to die and shed his blood, not just for her sins, but for all of ours as well. Aren't you glad that Jesus did that for us? That Jesus shed his blood and did not condemn her, but showed her forgiveness and mercy. John chapter 3 and verse 16, you know that verse, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Oh, you know that verse. Do you know verse 17, the next one? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him he might save the world. Folks, God did not send Jesus to execute us, to be our executioner, to be our condemner, to tell us that we were sinners. We know we're sinners. He came to die, to be condemned, that the weight of our sin would be placed on him, that this one who knew no sin would become sin for us, that the wages of sin is death. We should have died, but he died in my place. He bore my sin that I should have borne. He paid the penalty I should have paid. Oh, the blood of Jesus that washes and forgives and sets us free, amen? That woman experienced forgiveness that day. But did you notice what he called her? He called her a woman. You look at that and you go, oh man, that's derogatory. That's disrespectful, but it's not. In that day, that'd be like calling her lady or ma'am. It may have been the first time that she had ever been addressed properly. She may have been called every name in the book. Those scribes and those Pharisees had already named her adulterous, sinner, wicked. And there she is for all of the mess and all of the mistakes and all of the traps that these Pharisees had tried to do. They did one thing right. You know what it was? They brought her to Jesus. There's no better place for you to be than at the feet of Jesus. Amen? That you may have been dragged out of bed. You may have been called out of bed. You may have been drugged out of your house. And you're here today. There's no better place for you to be than right here. Amen? no better place for you to be. And here's this woman, adulteress, sinner, wicked. All the other labels that come to your mind could apply to her. And you know what Jesus does? When he forgives her, he strips her of all of those names and he calls her a woman. You may be here today and many of those labels apply to you and me. They've been calling us liar and cheater and sinner and criminal and all of the other names in the book may be attached to you. But friends, Jesus says, if you come to me, if you confess your sins, if you are convicted of your sins and you confess and repent of them, he strips you of your sins. He washes you clean. He strips you of your name and he gives you a new name. He calls you beloved. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. He calls you mine because he loves you. And he loves me. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. Go and sin no more. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I need to speed up. The third point is that forgiveness renews a dead life. The end of verse 11 says, And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. These words of Jesus speak life back into this woman. She's not condemned. She's forgiven. 
She's not judged. She's been shown mercy. And because of the mercy and forgiveness and grace that Jesus shows her, he releases her from the power of sin and sets her free to live to pursue righteousness. And that's what Jesus does for all of us when we bring our garbage, when we bring our filth, when we bring our sin, when we bring our shame, and we lay it at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I've made a mess of my life. Jesus washes us, cleanses us, calls us his own, and gives us the power to live for him a life of holiness. It's important that we don't get what Jesus said backwards. He didn't say, go and sin no more, and then I'll not condemn you. If Jesus had said that, none of us would ever make it, right? We all sin. We all come short of the glory of God. But Jesus didn't say that. He said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Powerful story of how forgiveness renews a dead life. If you're like this woman, and you're here today, and you, are, you have a defeated life, a dirty life, a sinful life, know that Jesus invites you to the cross invites you to come to confess your sin, to make it right with him. I want to close with the story of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. You may know that name. She was a feminist, lesbian activist who was professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University, and she did everything she could to promote that kind of lifestyle in her classroom at her university in her society. In 1997, she wrote a scathing article in her local newspaper attacking promise keepers. That article generated a tremendous amount of fan mail, so much so that she had to have a box on either side of her desk, one for fan mail and one for hate mail. But there was one letter that she received, a letter from a man named Ken Smith, pastor of the local Syracuse Presbyterian Church. That letter defied her filing system, and she didn't know what to do with it. Because his letter didn't attack her, it confronted her about her perspective. That letter became the impetus for a two-year relationship that she had with Ken and his wife, Floyd. Here's how she writes in her testimony. She says, Ken did not mock, he engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this would be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And so she decided that she would start to investigate the Bible, and she started reading it initially to refute Ken's claim about who Jesus was. But between Ken's witness and the truth, compelling truths of the scriptures, Rosaria didn't stand a chance. She continues to write one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in the pew at the local church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I had to remind myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. 
than one ordinary day, I found Jesus. I came to him open-handed and naked. In this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there. The church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed. And I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, that he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then in community. And today I rest in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. That is the power of forgiveness. Perhaps you're here today and the slate of sins in your life is so many that it can't be numbered. Or perhaps the depth of your depravity is so wide that you're so ashamed to tell anyone. No, that no matter how much you have sinned or how broad your sin is, the foot of the cross is available to you. That his blood that was shed 2,000 years ago is still powerful enough to wash your sins, to cleanse you, to bring you into his covenant family where he will call you beloved son or beloved daughter. We're going to sing a song and we're going to worship God together. But maybe there's some of you here today. The weight of sin is so heavy that you need to confess it. There's no reason rushing out of those doors. The parking is a mess. <laughs> you may as well take some time to get right with God. You know the saddest part about this story? It's the saddest part was those scribes and Pharisees who brought the accusation turned out to be accused. And they were standing in front of the only person who could have forgiven them, but what did they do? They walked away. Brothers and sisters, don't do that. Don't be like the Pharisees who lost an opportunity to fall at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Won't you today, if the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart of sin, come. Repent of your sin. Make it right with God. There may be people sitting here today who don't know Jesus Christ. We're so glad that you're here. Won't you come? And won't you meet the Savior of the world, the Savior of your soul, the one who died in your place and mine to give you freedom, and liberty, and justice, and mercy, all wrapped up in the cross of Calvary. Brothers and sisters, may today be the day that you're liberated, that you're set free from the sin that's eating at your heart, because Jesus forgives sin. Father God, I thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you that you have convicted us that you've shown us our sin. You've shown us how dirty we are. And yet at the foot of the cross, you wash us white as snow. So Lord, as your spirit moves across this oratorium, would you continue to convict us and bring us to our knees at the foot of the cross? And may we make it right with you before we leave today so that you might receive us, that you might forgive us, that you might receive all the glory. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.